episode number 41, Richard Farron. Welcome back to The Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I'm your host, Michael Cruz, and this time I have a long and fruitful discussion about sound design and composing with designer Richard Farron. I interviewed Richard last September at his home here in Toronto, and we talked about his early days in campus radio in Guelph, Ontario, and his entrance into Toronto theatre due to his proficiency with the violin and commitment to the avant-garde. Richard and I also land on his work organizing designers in Canada, so far about 450 members, to fight back against the ever-increasing cuts to design fees in Canada. We do not get to talk about his political satire work as Twitter maven at Rob Fraud, but you can check out Twitter for that part of his life. Make sure you check out the show notes for links to compositions by Richard as well as all the artists he's worked with in the independent theater scene in Canada. And again, if you like this show and want to support my work, please go to patreon.com. Just a couple of bucks an episode will help pay for web hosting and equipment to make the show sound top-notch. And a reminder as well that if you use the show to teach your students about the history of theater design, let me know. Email me at thetitleblock at gmail.com or drop us a message at our Facebook page or Twitter at thetitleblockca. Now join me in my sometimes inflammatory discussion with sound designer and composer Richard Farron. Since 1992, Richard Farron has been working as a sound designer and a composer for companies like Soul Pepper, Data Camera, Crow's Theatre, and Necessary Angel, among many, many others. And he joins me here today in his home in Toronto. Richard, welcome to the title block. Oh, uh, glad to be here. Thanks. <laughs> it's unbelievable I had to actually write that down to say it, but every time I screw it up. Right. So you grew up, you were born in Toronto. Yes. And you grew up in Guelph. Uh, yes. How did you find your way to theatre, and, and how did you think that was a good idea to um, pursue? <laughs> Well, it wasn't so planned. Um, uh, I was born in Toronto. My family moved to Guelph when I was about three. Um, my dad, uh, he's retired now, but he was a pharmacist. So it was, uh, there were some new shoppers drug marts uh, opening up there. And he, he was uh, like the manager of one. So I went to school there. Um, I was in a uh, play. My parents were involved with the Guelph Little Theatre. Um, for uh, many years, and so uh, there was a play, I think it was called Flint, and they needed some kids to play choir boys. It was all set in a in an Anglican church. It was kind of a British, kind of dark comedy drama. Um, and so I did a little, you know, I did a little acting back then, and I got to see, you know, it was it was a little theater, but there there some pretty, you know, uh, some kind of prose that worked there as well, and. Um, so, it, you know, it gave me a little taste of, you know, um, what it was like. And uh, I didn't really think of, you know, making it a career at the time. But um, I was interested in in drama and I read plays and stuff. It was, uh, I got interested in Samuel Beckett when I was in junior high, which is a bit unusual. But uh, <laughs> I, the, the uh, theater of the absurd, the concept appealed to me. So I was kind of reading stuff like that. And... Um, and then I went, uh, I moved back to Toronto around 1982, 83, um, to go to high school at uh, University of Toronto Schools. Um, 
So, yeah. So I was kind of on my own then. Um, and I did the, my final three years of high school uh, there. And I was involved with some kind of, I, I did a lot of writing then. I was That was kind of what I wanted to be was a writer at the time. Um, and I wrote uh, sort of humorous avant-garde poetry and skits and short stories mostly. And I wrote our kind of graduating class kind of uh, Christmas assembly skit, um, which was bizarre and involved uh, David Letterman and all kinds of strange things. Um, and I was in, I, I did a small acting role in the school play um, in my final year there. And um, then I started university, uh, it was going to be an English lit specialist, um, but it uh, didn't agree with me. I got bored very quickly um, and uh, sort of dropped out. And then um, I ended up moving back to Guelph for a while and just lived on my own and was doing radio. Um, so it was actually radio is kind of where I got my start in all of this stuff. So about 1981 or so, I started hanging around the uh, college radio station at, at U of G, CFRU FM. And um, there were some interesting people there. Uh, it was it was a really interesting time for new music. It was very it was like post punk, new wave, a lot of interesting bands at the time, and um, and so I started volunteering there. And um, I was so young; I was only like thirteen. And it was a buddy of mine was also interested, and we would we would hang out there, and we would uh, sit in with uh, some of the DJs' programs, and um, you know they would they would sometimes let us kind of guest on the air. Um, just for a bit of chit chat. And then, uh, they kind of trained us, you know, how to put a show together. And we did, uh, on tape, we, we did some programs on tape because, it was, you know, at the time it was kind of like, I think, I think the CRTC policy was that, you know, you had to be at least 14, uh, to do live broadcasts or whatever. So we did, it was all, we did some pre-taped ones at, the, at, at just to get started. And, um, you know, they liked what we were doing. And then once I turned 14, they were, they were okay to put me live on the air. And so I had a weekly, uh, music show, you know, and you'd always have to do a little bit of, you know, uh, spoken word, you know, human interest kind of stuff, or, you know, uh, talk about local, uh, events and issues. Um, and so that's where I learned, you know, how to use a uh, mixing board, how to um, edit, audio edit. And at that time, of course, it was all reel-to-reel tapes. Right. So I was really, I was working on the old Revoxes and the splicing blocks and, you know, cutting and, and, and uh, splicing and taping stuff t- together. And, um, you know, I, I did some of the, the like, news production, um, some uh, specialty programming where it was pre-produced. Um and so I learned quite a lot about, you know, uh, audio mixing, production, editing um, from doing radio then. Mm-hmm. Um, and shortly after, uh, when I finished high school, dropped out of university, went back to Guelph for a while, I, um, I branched out a little bit into various kinds of recording media. Um, so one thing I did was uh, a friend of mine and I kind of uh, put some money together on kind of lease to own a, uh, it was like a Fostex four track sure. cassette recorder. Mm-hmm. So we were doing multi-track, uh, music composing and, and production. 
um, which was fun. And we were very experimental. We were into the stuff like the Residence and uh, Van der Graaff Generator, and Chrome. Those are some of our the bands that we, we liked back then. So we were doing, we were really interested in unconventional, you know, um, seeing what we could do with this very simple recording technology. Mm-hmm. We'd have a few guitar pedals. I, you know, I was classically trained as a violinist so i you know i could play my violin but i like to uh, electrify it put it through pedals and stuff and uh, my friend nick uh, played guitar and um and then we would just you know uh round up you know tupperware containers or whatever to 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 use as our drums um and other household objects and uh we'd sort of rope other people in as guest musicians and we we churned out like a couple dozen uh, cassettes worth of original material. Did you ever? Sorry, uh, Brent Banbury had uh, mm-hmm. Brave New Waves yep. on CBC at the time. Yeah, like it was in the early. I guess it, it was. It, it was big in the mid '80s. Mm-hmm. Did you ever send anything anything into him? Like yeah. I, he would play that stuff all the time. Yeah. right. I believe he did. I could, I can't remember exactly what he played, but uh, I know that that uh, mm-hmm. you know we did send stuff in, and he did play some. Um, and of course we played it all on, on our radio station and sometimes other DJs would play our stuff because, right. you know, we could have our, we had our cassettes in the library there. Right, right. Back then it was all vinyl and cassettes basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and I tried, you know, I had a little cassette company, um, which is now it's still, that's turned into, you know, my music company that's still, you know, very modest, but still active, um, my partner Nick uh, at the time he's sort of gone off and become a math professor so he's he's not in it anymore but um, you know he still enjoys uh, listening to the old stuff um, so I was doing that I also got involved with uh, Ed Video which is one of the um, many uh, artist run media arts centers that uh, exist Canada wide uh, there's some here like Trinity Square Video and places like that in Toronto so in Guelph had Ed Video um, and there, you know, you could uh, take seminars with experimental filmmakers and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So I learned a bit about, um, you know, shooting video, a tiny bit about shooting film. It was mm-hmm. kind of too pricey for yeah. any of us. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we, they had access to both uh, old tube cameras and, um, more, you know, newer chip cameras. And you could sign them out, you know, for a really modest rental rate um and uh you know you basically would pay 100 bucks a year membership and then you would have access to uh an eight track recording studio um a video editing suite you could sign out cameras and you know mobile recording gear and stuff like that so that was another you know uh opportunity to learn a bit about you know and it was still it was just not quite all digital yet um it was starting to get there but we're still working on tape and um and you know umatic uh videotape stuff like that how much did these it sounds like that's where you sort of develop your own taste Mm -hmm. did you know that you were doing that or was this just something you were just trying to experiment in with and and didn't know where it was going to go uh did you have a plan or i didn't really have a plan but i did i mean i always had my own taste and so i was very you know clear about what kind of things interested me and um you know i was not you know i was not interested in playing you know in a in a bar band or something like that i wanted to be like the next brian eno or right, something sure. like that right so i was more interested in you know the studio and the recording and stuff and um not you know 
playing live was something you know it was kind of cool but it was it was not what i was geared towards mm-hmm. and uh, you know i was really interested in um how how to how to things sounded and how to record things and how to mix things together and how to, you know, get interesting new sounds and effects in, you know, in the, with a very modest kind of studio setup. Um, so that actually kind of indirectly led to, um, how I got involved in theater in the first place, because, uh, you know, these cassettes of my weird music would go out, you know, far and wide sure. I mean, to, to a limited degree and uh one of the people who uh in whose hands it fell into was uh fiona griffiths at uh who was teaching at university of guelph at the time and she was uh the acting ad of the theater resource center mm-hmm. uh, many years ago which was the kind of clown through mask training center founded by richard pachenko and ian wallace right. um and so all the all the clown through mask um, and all the people you know that do that, that's where that all started, of course. Um, whether it's Mump and Smoot or, you know, all, all the clowns that you see today, they all trace their roots back to that uh, organization. And so um, she, basically they got me in on a kind of, it was a, what they called a futures grant, which yeah. is like um, a way to just hire somebody in the early 20s out of school, um, you know, uh, so that you could get some, you know, someone working in the office without it coming out of the office budget or whatever. What, what year would this have been? That would have been 92. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were, I think that we've, this is not the first time we've talked about futures grants, I think, on the program. Stuff that, again, I don't think really exists now as well. I'm it's not sure. And yeah, yeah. Like it's a, it was an important... It was an important grant anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like people people started their careers off of it. Yeah. yeah. Well it got me I mean, it basically got me a job and it got me uh, a sort of reason to move back to Toronto, which mm-hmm. I'd been wanting to do. Um, and it introduced me to a whole, you know, community. Mm-hmm. And um you know, while strictly speaking, I was kind of like the office manager, but I was also, do, you know, I was chipping in on publicity. So I was like designing posters and ad copy. Um, and then, of course, they also wanted me to do uh, sound and a lot of, you know, tech stuff for their productions, which were, you know, modest, but it was an operating company. So they were doing, you know, the three productions a year. Um, and, uh, so at one point I, I stage managed, I stage managed a production of The Maids directed by Ian Wallace. Um, and, um, you know, I did, it didn't have a lot of sound in it, but I looked after that end of it and I, and I did some music for some of their other productions. And, um, so that was great. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, it was great cause I had like a, a kind of, uh, steady job or, you know, as long as the grant held out, they kind of, they actually kind of kept me on and they managed to get, um, a different kind of grant that paid a little better, like a section 25 or something like that. That was kind of like, um, you know, uh, to keep me working in the office. But, um, you know, I started to meet a lot of other, uh, artists in the theater community. Um, so one day, uh, I, you know, they had like a, a free ticket for the rhubarb festival and I went out to see that and I saw the the whole evening, you know, it was a mixed bag. It was, uh, back then the rhubarb festival was all, it was at the old buddy space on George street. So there was no kind of picking and choosing what you're going to watch. It was just like you plop yourself down and there's a whole evening of five shows all in the same space, you know, for better or worse. And one of them was by a company called uh, Pow Pow Unbound. 
and directed by Darren O'Donnell, um, who's still very active, uh, you know, his kids <laughs> nowadays. Um, but back then, he had a he had this little company with um, Wendy Agnew and uh, Stephen Seabrook, and um, you know, I thought their show, I you know, it, you know, I didn't quite get it, but it was very Dadaist right. and uh, kind of fun, and they and they had a guy. Um, doing the music for it who was uh he was sort of off in the corner but he was on stage and he was playing uh electric violin through a little uh this whole pedal board of guitar pedals um so at the end of the show i walked up to him and i was just you know shop talk you know uh, like because i played violin and i i wasn't happy with the pickups that i'd been trying to use and so i wanted to to you know, ask him a little bit about what he was using and what he thought of it, and so I, you know, I went up and I, I just started talking to him about electric violin and pickups and stuff like that, and he was like, "Oh, you play violin?" And I was like, "Yeah," uh, and he said, "Well, they're they just found out that they're going to get this show remounted in two months, and I can't do it, so they're looking for another violinist. Uh, here, let me introduce you to the director," and so I, you know. Right that night, uh, I met Darren, and um, you know we we hit it off, and uh, so I was that was kind of my first professional gig, um, you know, and I was on stage. I had a little camp, like a little scene where I actually went up and and did a little performance that I wrote um, because it was that kind of play. It was just kind of like everyone mm-hmm. kind of contributed something, and it wasn't it wasn't like a playwright wrote a script or something. Right. It was a collective um, creation. And then most of the time I was just there. Uh, I adapted some of what the, the previous violinist had done, and then I added some of my own stuff and used the same, you know, uh, guitar pedals. Mm-hmm. And so I was like a live musician performer. Um, and, you know, and then, so I worked with Darren on a few other things after that. I worked with Stephen Seabrook. He branched off to form his own company, and I worked with him on a bunch of stuff. And so, you know, and then other people, you know, wanted wanted me to do stuff for them and so that's when it started to become you know uh, okay now I can work as a composer and sound designer back then it was a little things were a lot looser in terms of the roles that people had mm-hmm. um it's it was not nearly as kind of uh you know uh, I'm not sure what the word would be like regimented, regimented yeah. exactly yeah because back then you could be a writer slash performer slash composer slash sound operator slash um, clown slash you know so we were all kind of like uh, performers multidisciplinary people who just collaborated on stuff yeah well it was also the rise <clears throat> in the early nineties there was sort of the rhubarb, the fringe, mm. poor Alex. Like, at yeah. the, at the sort of was a rebirth of the independent theater in Toronto, mm-hmm. where creative, it was a whole new creative kind of force. Yeah. That we were kind of riding the wave of there yeah. at the end. Um, and Stephen, I remember that you guys came to Blythe. Yes, the Young right. Company yes. in 94, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And how was that experience? I know that I was just out of school. Right. That was like my first gig. And uh, we had a, it was an it was it was not something you'd kind of predict to be the young company in Blythe. It was no. a very different approach. Yeah. Uh with you and Steven Seabrook. Can yeah. you describe your experience and how you got hired and, and well, how it was, that it was actually quite a great experience. Um it was mainly because of Paul Thompson, I think, because oh, okay. he had seen a play that I had written for Rhubarb earlier that year called Round Rotund Rumps, mm-hmm. 
which was a nonverbal um, performance cartoon, we called it. There was five of us, uh, not all of us like conventional actors. There were some, you know, one guy was a fellow musician. There was a, da- a couple dancers. Um, and my best friend, Veronica, who's a great uh, performer. Um, and... Um, it was kind of a hit at the at rhubarb at the time because it was it was just very odd and and surreal and funny and um, and we had a lot of odd little tricks like the furniture was um, you know we had a lot of like quick blackouts relocate start a new scene in the dark um, and at first we were just going to like you know do the usual where you glow tape the corner of the table or whatever and actually Stephen um, to his credit. Uh, suggested, well, why, you know, why make it just this little small thing? Why don't we go all the way and, like, outline all the furniture entirely, like, this dotted lines of glow tape? Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, like, our, our our biggest budget item was the glow <laughs> yeah, tape because sure. we used so much of it. But yeah. it, it, was, it was brilliant, and it actually gave us this whole new um, thing that we could do, which was when the lights blacked out, everything went black except the outlines of the furniture. And then we could lift up the, t- it was like the furniture would move by itself in the dark and we would dance it around and set it down into its next spot and then assume our position. So the lights would come up and we were all like in our next position. Right. So it it had this great kind of aesthetic that, um, you know, was altogether new. Like the novelty was, you know, I mean, I can't, uh, overstated. It's mm-hmm. like this, this was not like what people had been seeing anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So on the strength of that, um, Paul Thompson, who really liked that, I guess, um, <laughs> arranged for us to kind of co-direct the young company at Blythe that year. Right. And um, and so we went up and we, you know, we stayed in the kind of dodgy, yeah. you know, it was like the old orphanage building right. or whatever. Um you know, we we had we rented a car for the summer. Like Stephen bought, he bought some old car, mm-hmm. and uh, I pitched in on it too, and um, and we had a great uh, group. And it was, you know, it ranged in age from I guess the youngest ones were about twelve mm-hmm. to about nineteen. And we had like uh, Rachel Thompson, uh, who's still a friend of mine. She's Paul's daughter, mm-hmm. and Rachel Brophy. Um, they were the same age, and they were uh, friends. And um, based on some of their own background, we ended up putting them, they were kind of like the coordinators of the young company for us, but we ended up putting them in the show as their own kind of uh, parallel narrative where they slowly, gradually, one article of clothing at a time turned into Amish women. And then by the end, near the end of the show, they had this great big cat fight in full Amish women um, costume. And basically what we did is we, we exploded uh, round rotund rumps, uh, which was originally for five people, and we made it for three different groups of five mm-hmm. um, young performers. So it was like the youngest kids, you know, they were a group of five, and then the the middle ones a group of five, and the older ones uh, a group of five. Mm-hmm. And so they they would do the same scenes, but with different variations on them, and um, and then they'd start to merge, and you know, so it became this. It became a full hour and a bit uh play at that point from a 25 minute rhubarb thing and um you know it was a bit controversial i think um there was a lot of like you know uncertainty about you know were we like not people who should be around kids or (laughs) um, uh you know and 
the kids really seemed to like it. Um, so there and you know there were a couple parents that were like not you know they were very skeptical, but uh, many others that seemed to be you know they were happy that their kids were getting something out of it, and they seemed to be very you know inspired by it. So on the whole, um, we were very pleased at, at how it went. And um, I don't know what the festival thought. I think, you know, uh, some of them were were happy with it, but I'm sure not all of them. <laughs> um, well, that's what yeah. good theater is, though, right? Yeah. I mean, that was the year that Blythe turned itself around as well. Right. right? Yeah. Like it was, it was on the brink of being closed. Mm. <clears throat> and... Uh, and we saved it. <laughs> and you saved it. Yeah. Well, you were there. It was yeah. all part. Like we were yeah. all. It yeah. was. It was a really important year. Yeah. Um. So. So you come out of this kind of tradition, uh, uh that you were rewriting, like, 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 every, as a company, you're mm-hmm. rewriting the sort of notion of what theater should be. Really. Yeah. Uh, which was, I think, happening a lot in independent theater in Toronto yeah. in the early yes. '90s, right? And uh, and there were a lot of different venues for it. Um, how did you settle on co- composition? Like that's kind of what your wheelhouse. That's where you came from. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and did you continue to write and perform after that? Like when did it, when did that sort of? Well, it basically it just nobody would pay me for it anymore. Right. Um, quite simply, <clears throat> uh, you know, I th- that was the the specialized skill that few other people could provide at the time. Right. And the my early sound designs, which you know, it's it's. Pretty much nine out of ten, you know, projects that I do, it's a combination of I'm I'm always composing some original music as well as doing sound design. It's rarely ever either or. Um, so, the you know the stuff I was doing back in the in the early '90s was quite singular. I think like nobody else was doing that kind of thing. It was very immersive, and I was working with people who were really interested in what you know, soundscapes could bring to things. So they were quite happy to just, you know, more, more, more. Um, the the first Dora Award I won back in 1995 was for a production called uh, Excerpts from the Emo Journals, mm-hmm. which uh, they decided was not, just not going to have any text at all, mm-hmm. right? So it really, it needed to have constant, um, you know, scoring throughout. Mm-hmm. And we tried, a, we did a lot of different things. Um, so they really, you know, wanted, they, they wanted a lot. Um, had you scored something before? Like that seems like a lot to go from sort of supportive, from a supportive level to mm-hmm. here's an hour and a half of solid Well, sound. you know, it, I actually didn't go, I mean, it's, it's gone the other way. Like I started out more as like extravaganza provider and then, and then gradually like people wanted less and less. And now it's just mostly supportive in, in, in most cases. So, but back then people were really interested in it and it was most of the things that I was working on were not conventional plays. They were like new original, um, collaborative uh ventures so there was room for you know whatever i I was going to bring in and um and people often used the you know the composition and soundscapes that i was doing as part of the actual narrative Mm -hmm. um and then so that would actually be that would actually set up whole scenes and stuff Mm -hmm. um so you know there was i think the first kind of full-scale one that i did uh was in nine late 92, early 93, uh, Steven Seabrook adapted Strindberg's The Dance of Death. And we did it at, um, 
back when Equity Showcase was a thing. Um, I don't think that even exists anymore. But, uh, you know, it was Equity organized this thing as a way for, uh, you know, nobody got paid, but you would get access to resources and you could have a short professional run, you know, at, uh, at Harborfront. And so we did this really quite striking uh, production of The Dance of Death where we we were all vampires. It was all kind of like in bondage gear, a mm-hmm. uh, bit goth, goth vampire S&M mm-hmm. uh, kind of approach to it. The script was severely whittled down. Uh, we had an extra a special monologue contributed by Sky Gilbert. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it was, it was quite fun. And I was kind of, I was like... Uh, a character who at first was just a guy seemingly playing a pipe organ kind of at the back of the house. And then I gradually kind of would enter more and more into the scene. And so what I was doing shifted from a combination of tapes with some live playing to kind of more playback because then I would leave my station and the tapes would keep playing. (laughs) And I don't even, you know, I can't even say how I even did this back then. Um, you know, and I was actually like, I had like a, a leather, a studded leather, like jock strap, you know, <laughs> underneath my kind of cardinal robes. And so everyone gradually like got undressed through the course of the show until we were all, it was all like an, in a dungeon basically right, and being right, right. whipped with cat and nine tails and stuff like that. It was, right. it was quite, um, you know, <laughs> it was quite fun. Um, and uh, that, you know, I didn't write it all, uh, all the music, kind of, you know, not exactly from scratch. Basically, Stephen really liked this kind of suite that I had composed on my own, right. and I basically adapted it to suit the production, and then and then added a few more things of my own. Um, and another early one we did, which was another weird adaptation, was uh, Das Rheingold. Mm-hmm. First, Stephen wanted to do the whole ring cycle, but as this weird, like, not actually do the opera, but do do a kind of theatrical kind of stripped down but very vivid kind of spectacle mm-hmm. staging. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked with uh, Justin Roddy, another composer, to, we basically wrote our own score, which some which sort of like was uh, a nod to some of the Wagner. And we would kind of adapt or we'd take little loops of it or, you know, create our own thing out of it. And um, it, uh, it was no. It was kind of notorious for being one of the loudest productions at the time. Right. Um, it was at the old theater center, and um, you know, we it was broken glass all over the stage. It was kind of a legendary thing, right. um, and uh, I was always very proud of it because it was it was so. Um, you know, the show itself was so weird but interesting, and the sound was so full and you know uh, visceral mm-hmm. in a way. Um, so, you know, we don't often get a chance to do that kind of thing anymore. No. Can I ask you to speculate on why that's not done anymore? Like, it seems like what you're describing is, uh, is a playground where people mm-hmm. can take risks. Yeah. And they had the opportunity to take risks and there was at least some funding for it and uh, support and the yeah. companies were, now it seems like people are. Well, I, I believe it was a, a confluence of several factors, one being that there was more funding at the time. So it, it allowed for, um, you know, uh, money to be put into things that were only just uh, sketched on a napkin at the, at the moment, right? And and to kind of pay 
artists to just work, you know, to develop stuff as a group. And so there were, there was also the personalities at the time. So there were a lot more um, very kind of uh, experimental minded people, people who were not interested in, you know, writing scripts or doing, you know, uh, traditional plays. They just wanted to kind of collaborate and, and, you know, really explore kind of like push the limits of what could happen on stage. Mm -hmm. And that agreed with me very much because I was always a bit of a kind of anarchist. Like I came from, you know, a background of experimental and industrial music where it was always about pushing boundaries and, um, you know, so I wasn't interested in, you know, doing plays necessarily. I was interested in doing theater Mm -hmm. and working with people with similar kind of, you know, uh, people who would, we could inspire each other and sort of, um, you know, uh, bounce ideas off of each other and kind of improvise and come up with, um, really fresh, you know, um, unusual things that nobody else was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there was a lot, and, and there was our group like Pow Pow Unbound was one, um, you know, uh, Jacob Wren back then he was called Death Waits and, uh, he, he had kind of his own little group. Um, and so there were, there were a number of these sort of troops that would kind of stay together and you you don't see that so much anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, you know, uh, so there, there, there were those factors. Um, there were also more, um, kind of venues that would allow for that kind of thing. And there were a lot, there was, one thing that was very common back then were these kind of one-night events um, that actually encouraged everybody, not just actors, but everybody in the business to get on stage and present something. So there was the bangs at the theater center. There was the, uh, Darren started this, like, the 40 Tiny Performances, uh, the first one at Buddy's. Um, there were the the theater resource center soirees, which I helped to curate and um, and organize. And so there were a lot of these, and it, it, it was just a kind of petri dish of, of, you know, where people could just kind of come together, you know, in an evening and like witness each other doing crazy stuff. And, and, and it wasn't just actors, it was like, you know, we were all doing it. Um, and so it allowed for a lot of creative cross play. And those kind of events, you know, they're not as common anymore. There's fewer venues. It's more expensive to use the venues. There's less funding. There's less... Int- the the pe- people are a little more, I don't know, shall I say, conservative. Um, you know, even though even the very young and talented up-and-coming people today are not... They're not that um, kind of adventurous about the the nature of the, the work itself, right? They're really doing their... They're either playwrights writing scripts or they're actors who want to do, you know, well-written plays, you know, um, I'm generalizing a bit, but it's sort of, that's, that's much more the case in, in, you know, uh, generally now than it was back then. Um, not, you know, no disrespect to to any of that, but it's just like the, it's just been a, a big shift, um. It seems, uh, I've had this discussion with a couple people now, um, Ron Jenkins is one of them, about mm-hmm. <clears throat> what makes theater special? Like, what, mm-hmm. what makes it, what, why, why should we go see it? Like, what makes right. it something that people should avoid Netflix and, uh-huh. the, and, the, and the film for to go right. see, right? Um, and musical theater, I think, is one, I mean, that's my, my um, 
the one thing I cling to that is that is only really successful on stage mm-hmm. is musical theater. Dance to a certain extent, but I guess it depends on how it's shot. Right. Um, but musical theater really it lives mm-hmm. on a live stage. Yeah. You know, those kind of live events, and it sounds like the stuff that you're describing from that period is also very like it is. It is. It lives in the theater. Yeah. Like, this is not something that's trying to recreate. Yeah. Or you know, like make a pastiche of or or borrow from. It's mm. like a kind of a fundamental element. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the same token, I wonder how, I mean, your experience was great. Like, obviously, it's something that's very close to you. But how successful is it in communicating to audiences? Like, were people responding to it? And, and did you feel like there was a community of people there that would that you were playing to, like they, that you felt I was important? I think so. I mean, for the most part. Um, I mean, the stuff that we were doing, because I, you know, I took great pains not to get to be too pretentious and serious about it, because to me it was actually like, it had to be fun, and um, it could be very rigorous and very bold and, and provocative, but, um, you know, it, there, you know it, it also had to be, like, not that hard to understand. Right. It was it was more just the 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 novelty of it like um and and one thing that was i think kind of a running theme was that it was very live and in the now kind of right um and my i have a theory that about 90 to 95 percent of all the theater that is ever produced is actually some form of reenactment um you know and i'm not saying this pejoratively it's just an assessment because a you know a play tends to be what you're seeing on stage is actually uh, a reenactment of something that's supposed to happen and have happened in another time and place. Mm-hmm. It's happening live on stage in front of you, but it's not happening there and now, right? right? It's actually like, um, you know, 1926 in, you know, or what it's like, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, it can still be great work and it can still be very exciting, but actually there's, that's why there's a fourth wall. Mm-hmm. It's because like actually, they're not aware that there's an the actors are aware there's an audience, but the characters are reenacting uh, something that was in a specific time and place that is not the time and place of the theater, right? Yeah, yeah. And the work that I was most interested in was stuff that was not a reenactment. It was actually happening right there on the stage in the moment, you know. And so you, it would change from night to night based on how the audience would respond, right. and it was it was. Uh, you know, the stuff that I did played a lot with audience expectations. Mm-hmm. So we would play, we would test the audience's patience. And we would also, you know, we would lead them into expecting something more conventional and then surprise them with something mo- much more unexpected. And it sort of made them really kind of alive. And, mm-hmm. you know, even if they were frustrated sometimes, it was usually funny enough or kind of, um, you know, sort of, uh, enlightening in some way it was sort of like oh it just you know they didn't realize that such a thing was possible or it just sort of like it led them on a, on a, uh, into some unexpected uh, territory mm-hmm. and so you know that kind of thing uh which is really what we're doing with this new cage project which we'll get back to later mm-hmm. but um you know that's much more in the, in that realm because it's it's in in the room at the moment mm-hmm. um and very little theater really is um so you know uh when i worked with daniel mciver on his one-man shows there was it was a little more like that because he would address the audience directly 
but he was also storytelling. So within that, he would go like, now there would be reenactment within it, right? So he would he would switch to another character, um, you know, still still speaking to the audience, but sort of telling a story of something that had you know happening in another time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's you know I'd like to see more stuff that is really like it's not a reenactment. It is it is actually happening in the room on the stage right now um, somehow, right? Yeah. Uh, that's an that's a very interesting observation. I never thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Uh, now tell me about Daniel Brooks and Daniel McIver. You did a there was a couple of shows you've done with them, but uh, you'd worked with him later on at Soul Pepper. But you've done a number of uh, McIver stuff yeah. with Dada Camera, right? How did you get first get involved with them, and and uh, and how was that storytelling different than the stuff you were doing with? Stephen Seabrook and the other right. creators. Well, it's all it um it all kind of one thing led to another. Yeah. So, um that, you know, that rhubarb play that I did that Stephen directed yeah. um caught the attention of some people. Uh Daniel Brooks in particular really liked it and I think it was sort of I didn't know a lot of the Augusta Company's work yeah. back then, but apparently it was sort of reminiscent. So we kind of, you know, we were kind of on the same wavelength in yeah. some ways. I uh, also um I was dating Nadia Ross at the time, oh, right. who was also, she had her own, you know, uh, experimental theater company and was doing kind of interesting work as well. It was a little more, say, literary than, than what we were doing. Um, but, you know, it explored a lot of similar terrain. And um, so it was, a, it was a, um, a collaboration between her and Daniel McIver that was this uh, piece that I did, the, the massive... Uh, you know, uh, score for that, that won me my first Dora award and Daniel Brooks was a uh, director on it. Uh, I think you sort of, I think McIver and, and Nadia were the, the main directors and Brooks, you know, kind of helped out. Um, and, um, and so as a result of that, um, uh, Daniel and Daniel, uh, brought me in to work on, uh, Here Lies Henry, which was, uh, McIver's solo show at the time. And, um, and so we, you know, that was one of the first times that I was using a, a wireless lavalier mic, um, using mic effects. Um, and I was starting to work with a, uh, sampling keyboard, uh, which was actually still, you know, one of the best tools that I found for theater. And, um, you know, I still use a l- kind of indirectly, uh, to this day, but at the time it was like I did most of the cues were actually fired off this sampling keyboard because it could be so precise. Because back then, of course, we were really working on cassette a lot of the time, yes. so you know, cueing could not be as as precise as we can do today with all digital technology. Um, so you know, and that that was a very successful uh, show that we toured r- literally around the world. Like we took it to. You know, at the Edinburgh Festival, Sydney, Australia, the festival there, um, around the States, across Canada, um, a few other places in Europe. And, um, and so I, you know, I became kind of part of that company for the next 10 years. Um, and uh, uh, there was a series of shows that went on tour sporadically, um, Monster, uh, In On It, uh, Cul-de-Sac, um, and this is what happens next. Um, and, uh, and then also, you know, uh, Daniel Brooks just started to have me do all of, all of his other productions as well. 
Um, so uh, even before he, he became the artistic director of Necessary Angel, he was, he was directing in various contexts. So um, I did his show Insomnia, which is still one of my, kind of one of my personal favorite uh, sound scores. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, a few other things, uh, a few things at Tarragon. I did the designated mourner, um, got to meet Wallace Shawn because he came to see it. Um, and he actually thought he, some of the music that I played in the interlude, which was something that I wrote, and he was like, oh, was that, uh, I thought that was Shostakovich. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was really honored that he would uh, think that. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I've I probably worked with Daniel Brooks more than any other director. I mean, I'm sure there's at least 20 productions that we've worked on together. Um, most recently, just A Doll's House at Soul Pepper um, and The Other Place at Canadian Stage a couple of years ago. Personally, I like to hear. I would like to hear Wallace Shawn say Shostakovich. I think that would be really interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, so let's just talk about the transition from tape to digital or mm-hmm. tape to sampling. Because yeah. were you uh, creating on a larger format and then mixing down to cassette, or were you recording on cassette, like like eight track cassette or four track cassette, and then mixing to stereo? Or how did that process? Well, it's, work it underwent work? A various different. It, it evolved over time. So when I first started, I was using. Um, I wasn't even using MIDI. Um, y- you know, I was a late adopter of MIDI because I didn't really have enough devices to make sure. it to hook them together. So I was literally using just one thing at a time, mm-hmm. and I would record on the on the uh, the Fostex four track. Mm-hmm. So in the early years, it was just using that. Uh, but I would take you know a synth or a keyboard or whatever, and and record that into that, um, and then you know. Uh, overdub other tracks on it um, and then mix it and then I would mix it all down onto a stereo cassette and so at the time um, uh, a, a sound design if, if there were 40 sound cues in it there would be 40 cassettes right, right. you know because you just have like a cassette per cue and you'd have to like you know like rewind and then like press play stop as soon as you heard a sound and then do a quarter turn back and then and then have them all lined up so it was quite a pain um, but that's what we had to work with at the time. Yeah, and your reset was basically going back with all forty cassettes and at the yeah. top to the top of the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was a pain. Ass. I mean, we didn't, you know. So there, I mean, I think forty was like the most cues I ever had during the cassette era. Yeah. Um, it usually be be a lot fewer. Um, and and then I started to, you know, I, I kind of got into um, the sampling keyboard. So at first, that would also be. Um, a source for, but it would still get recorded into the cassette four track and bounce down to a, you know cassette cues. Mm-hmm. But but then I also would incorporate um, the keyboard sampler, the sampling keyboard into the operation of things because right. back then it was more common to to have me operate. Right. Um, and so I would basically have like the longer kind of bed tracks would be on tape, mm-hmm. and then the sort of spot cues would be hit off the uh, sampler. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we went on tour with Here Lies Henry, there weren't a lot, I think, uh, you know, that one was still, I was still using tape, but there were only like two or three cues. It was like the, the opening music and then the, the curtain call and then maybe, you know, everything else was do- just done with the sampling keyboard because I could loop stuff, you know, so the big rainstorm was actually just done on the sampling keyboard. Um, cause I would have one key would just be a, a, a loop looping rain sample and then there'd be a couple other thunders in the in the 
the multi sample that I would hit at certain points, mm-hmm. and then I could just you know and I would hold it down with a sustain pedal and then like release it all at once when the lights snap back, right? right? right. So it was actually you could get much more precise with that than with tape. Mm-hmm. And then we started to be able to at the time it was like I'd have to go to um, someone like Todd Charlton, uh, maybe rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was one of the first people to actually have a CD burning right. uh, capability. So we would take, I would like, then I was starting to like mix my stuff down onto uh, DAT tape. Mm-hmm. And then I take the DAT and he'd burn a CD and then we could, you know, use the CD. So then send CD playback became common mm-hmm. and you could get a lot more precise depending on your deck. Um, and the, the sound quality was obviously so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, no more tape hiss and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so for a while, like I was then, it would be a combination of, you know, the a lot of cues mastered onto CD, mm-hmm. um, but I would still use the sampling keyboard for spot cues and stuff like that. So, you know, Insomnia, the original Insomnia was run off of two CD decks that would AB a- a- back and forth mm-hmm. and the sampling keyboard and there were a couple mics and, a, and an outboard mic effect mm-hmm. um, all kind of just mixed down on a Mackie analog board. Right. Um, and then when we did it years later, I then started to like remaster all those old cues and and then like program them in a, in a a into computer playback mm-hmm. form. Mm-hmm. And pretty much since... I guess 2000, the early 2000s started to be more and more computer playback. Mm-hmm. It seems uh, to me as well that we had, like I was, um, when I had my original training, my, my original training at Ryerson, everyone was teaching how to edit on, on two track and four track real to real. And that was kind of the standard. Right. And it, you could get pretty precise and you could, there was a whole bunch of techniques to, mm-hmm. to, to mix and add effects and loops and everything mm-hmm. else into that, which you couldn't really do on a cassette. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like the, because that technology was never available to the smaller company. I mean, some, mm-hmm. but and even then, in a small space, like pressing play on a reel to reel was this large like cut yeah, chunk at yeah. the back of the theater. Right? Yeah, it was not so discreet. <laughs> it was not a discreet thing. Yeah. You had to have a separate like enclosed yeah. sound space. Yeah. So it seems like the digital technology sort of snuck in and then leapfrogged over yeah. whatever the the standard yeah. technology right yeah Dad, well the, the sampling keyboard was a huge evolutionary leap first mm-hmm. of all because you could um you had random mm-hmm. access so it didn't you know it right. was like if uh you know in in insomnia for instance mm-hmm. daniel brooks would do this dance where he would do these sort of tai chi, tai chi punches and every time he punched into the air there would be this you know really loud shattering glass sound mm-hmm. and i just had like a, a sample bank of glass breaks mm-hmm. that i Literally, it was like different every night, and I could just hit a bunch at random, and I would just watch him. And when he punched, I would just hit them, mm-hmm. and it, and it didn't matter how many times he punched. Like I could just you know I could give him a sound. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, you know, uh, the you know using QLab is wonderful now. That's how we do everything um, basically. But it's because it's so sequential. It's kind of linear. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ways around it. You can hotkey certain cues so that you can have that kind of random, like, oh, how many footsteps is he going to take? You know, it might be eight or nine, doesn't matter. I just keep hitting the hotkey, right? But but most of the time, you kind of have to stick to, like, what's programmed because it's hard to jump around and, um, you know, and it's very, it's it's much more, you know, sequential rather than kind of, like, random. Um, but it's allowed us to do things that we could never do, uh, with manual operation, like, you know, 
not the least of which is being able to have multiple layers going um, because, you know, it used to be really, you know, we would have two decks. And the, the reason for that wasn't just because that's all we could afford. It was actually that, you know, to crossfade between things, you'd probably be, you know, you'd need both hands to, to manipulate two faders each for, you know, to crossfade between the two decks. So if you're, once you're dealing with three or four decks, and I did have designs that were three or four decks, but they, you know, I, I couldn't really have them. You couldn't have an operation where it was crossfading between three decks at the same right. instant yeah. because, you know, the operator just didn't have enough arms to do that. Right. Um, but now with, with uh, digital playback, um, you can have pretty much an infinite number of different layers fading, moving to different speakers. You know, it's all automated now. Um, the the only drawback is that it's so, you know, it is so programmed that it doesn't allow for any kind of loose play with, where we used to have, where you could kind of like, you know, um, a skillful operator could kind of ride the levels up under an actor's monologue kind of, and, you know, it would be a little different each night. And now you can't, you know, you, you kind of can't really do that with, with QLab, not very easily anyway. You kind of have to build these long fades and um, it's all kind of set. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it gives us so much more advantages at this point. And, and if you're, if you're good at it, you know, you can kind of get around a lot of the limitations and, f and, and really, you know, get a lot out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm not looking back at all. There's, you know, there's sometimes I'm things I miss about live operating, but you know, nobody pays me to do that anymore because right. there's always technicians and, um, you know, comes up once, once in a while. Uh, like Cage, for instance, I'll be operating, but I'm also a performer in the show. Mm -hmm. So it's it's all kind of uh, part and parcel of that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, most of the time, no, they're not going to have me actually run the sound anymore these days. So it all has to be programmed. And how did you find that handoff? Like I missed, and you must have missed, like being, being a, first of all, mm -hmm. uh, not only as a designer mm -hmm. having the control, but also being a part of that every night mm -hmm. must have been... I, I do special, miss right? it. Yeah. I mean, especially when I was touring with Daniel McIver, I mean, we, it was, it was like a, a team show. It was like, he wasn't alone on stage. We were, we were partners and, uh, you know, we were very, very good together. Like I, I could match his smallest move and I could improvise, you know, there was a lot of improvising, but every once in a while, something weird would happen and I would try to deal with it with him. Um, so you know, that there was a real rapport there that, um, you know, you, you can't really recreate in, in most cases. Right. Um, and, you know, and it was also back then it was practical because we, we were touring around the world and we were literally like, there were just the three of us most mm -hmm. of the time in stage. We didn't really have a stage manager. Don't tell equity, but you know, it's, <laughs> okay. like, it's like old news anyway. But, yeah. but most of the time it was just me and the lighting designer and Daniel. Mm -hmm. And we would just, we'd set up our gear and then we'd run and we, you know, we wouldn't need to look at a script. We didn't wear headsets. You know, we just knew our cues mm -hmm. and we would just like watch him and, and we'd do our thing. Um, and it allowed for, uh, you know, a, a very quick and efficient setup and, you know, be a very, you know, a, a really live feeling show. Mm -hmm. Like it really felt like, wow, this is, this isn't programmed. It's actually like really happening right. in the room. You, you know, not that you could really tell, but you know, it, it, it really was. Mm -hmm. So, so, it, you know, people could sort of feel that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I, so I do miss that. Um, the thing is, it's not, you know, it's not really practical at my end either, because it's just, you know, it's hard enough to juggle, you know, uh, multiple projects, uh, just time-wise, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, to have to, like, stick around to kind of run the whole run as well. It's just not practical for me either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've developed a whole strategy for how to program it and hand it off to a, to a technician. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's fine. Like, uh, you know, and, and a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the projects don't really, they're not going to necessarily benefit from that live operator kind of thing in most cases anyway. So it's, you know, it's all for the best really. to ask you once again to support the title block on patreon.com click on support the show in the show notes this will bring you to my patreon page where you can donate a small amount every episode i'm just asking that you help out to cover those costs and help me to continue to capture the story of canadian theater design go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate a couple of bucks an episode it really helps so uh I've asked this question before, but you have a unique perspective because you've worked with Daniel Brooks so much. Um, when I was working with, uh, I think, Kevin Lamont mm-hmm. in episode one, when we talked about this, uh, I was assisting Kevin on Heartbreak House mm-hmm. at uh, Straw Festival. And Tadeusz Podecki was the director. He's uh, Polish. Mm-hmm. And he, his, uh, it, was a, it was a heartbreak house like nobody had seen at the Shaw Festival, right? There was no ship on stage. It was a complete mm-hmm. departure from what the script calls for and uh, what, what the audience really expected, probably. And there was a lot of kind of uncertainty about whether the audience would respond to mm-hmm. this because it was really about the end of you know, the Belle Epoque and the beginning of the New World and Edwardian society, had like it was the start of World War One, And that's what he made it about. And Tadeusz's answer was, I can't control what the audience thinks. I can just produce, I can just respond to the world mm-hmm. and I can put this thing on stage and they will love it or they will hate it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, most of the time, people like what I do. Like, when it all comes out in the wash, all you need is, what did somebody say? Uh, Peter Bogdanovich said... Um, uh, his his thing was you need one hit out of three. You can have two flops, and the third right. one's got to hit. Because if you right. don't hit, you're going to be done. Right. So uh, you know, as long as you're consistent, that's important. But mm-hmm. the audience was not part of his his uh, equation. Mm-hmm. Go to Daniel Brooks, mm-hmm. and I remember having a discussion because I assisted Andrew Lundy on uh, a remount of Here Lies Henry at Buddies. Right. Uh, in 90, whatever it was, six or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, Daniel was obsessed. Like, the audience didn't laugh like they laughed last night at this part, right. at the preview. So we're going to change this. Huh. Your note tonight is do this differently. Right. Uh, and he was very, very focused on how the audience responded. Mm-hmm. What is your perspective on that? On what theater, should theater care about the audience? Should we disregard them? Is there a mix like, do you have them in the back of your head when you're composing, or are you really just talking about, or thinking about the, the, the message you're trying to? Well, send? I simultaneously um, consider them uh, while also um, not worrying too much about. You know, it's not like that. I worry about how they'll react or whatever, um, but I do. I 
the audience is very important um, in to me in how I make my choices and stuff because I want to, you know, I'm doing it for them, but I'm not going to pander to them or make it easy for them necessarily. But what I am going to do is I'm going to do my job and and make sure that behind the scenes I've thought it all through. It's all, you know, like if anyone wanted to take it apart, like everything makes sense, right? And so I think you always have to um, remember that, you know, remember the audience, mm. uh, but don't try to second guess them or don't try to, you know, take, to, they're going to be a bit random, right? Mm. I mean, you, you got to, what you got to do is make sure like you're not leaving any loose ends, you know, un, uncovered or that you've done all the work behind the scenes to present something that's solid mm -hmm. to the audience. And then they'll love it or they'll hate it or whatever, but at least they'll, they're not going to be like wondering, like, was that deliberate or what, you know, like mm -hmm. it's, to me, it's very important to be deliberate, even if you're being deliberately um, mystifying or misleading them or playing with their expectations, right. just make that itself clear as well. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I like to, you know, sometimes play pranks on the audience, but they're also included in the prank so that they can also appreciate it. But this, so they they get surprised, and then it, it leads them to something, and so they're they're kind of like, you know, they don't feel like that they've been had, but they feel like, oh, this is you know, they've something is you know pushed them along in some way. Uh, can you give me an example of when you did that? Um, well, some you know, uh, in some cases it was the stuff that I that I wrote, uh, you know, um, but also as a as a designer, just sometimes like a sense of humor in the in the cues themselves. So there, uh, you know, it's hard for me to think of anything in particular. Well, there was there was a production of Faust that we did um, at the Tarragon many years ago, and that uh, Daniel Brooks directed that, and he's very he's very open minded about kind of what the language can be and not needing it to be kind of confined to the usual theatrical idioms. And because we weren't doing it as a period piece, but it wasn't necessarily modern or whatever, it was kind of like, you know, non-specific in that way. Mm -hmm. So at one point there was a scene where um, uh, Faust and his, I guess, Wagner, his, uh, his, his associate or whatever, um, you know, they get into a fight and, and beat some guy up and then they're like, oh, we better get out of here. And what I, and I, I used a sound cue of like squealing tires, you know, like a, a, a muscle car pulling away. And you know, there was no cars in the scene or anything. It was just a way to signify like, and a way to kind of quickly transition from that scene to the next scene just by using that sound. And, you know, the audience would be either confused or or amused or or um, whatever. But it was they got it right, mm -hmm. even though it, it was absurd and not what you would expect. But it um, it did it did serve a purpose. It mm -hmm. it was like no, they it was very clear what the message was, and it actually worked, and it also kind of like propelled us into the next scene. So it actually served a number of uh, theatrical uh, purposes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's that's one example. It's, I'm kind of doing it all the time. There's usually some kind of joke in my soundscape somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, although it may not, it's not a, you know, a big deal. It's just kind of, it might be a sly joke or it's just a very dry humor sometimes. Mm -hmm.
And do you, uh, because you toured with a bunch of things, uh, have you been to Asia? I have not. But Europe. Europe, yeah. Did you find um, any differences in cultural, any cultural differences that, that made them respond to the sound differently? And do you have to be aware of the, that kind of cultural language? Or do you, um, in a countercultural way, kind of mm. countercultural way, not worry about that? Well, you you can't worry about it too much because if you're you're going to tour a show internationally, you're not going to keep changing the show yeah. for the different audiences. Mm. Um, what I observed, say, from touring uh, MacIver shows was that um, in in the UK and Europe generally, um, the audiences were much more um, kind of sharp and uh, intellectually savvy and literate. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would get kind of literary references and stuff. Um, and they would appre- and they tended to be much more appreciative of the sort of more absurdist or kind of um, you know sly humor that that we we worked into it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas uh, when we toured in the United States, the American audiences generally would kind of really only laugh at the most obvious jokes, and a lot of stuff would go over their heads, mm-hmm. and they would still they would still like it, and they would still get it, but, you know, there a lot of the, the subtleties would be lost on them, and I'm generalizing, of course, sure. but, and that would vary, it would, you know, a New York audience would be very different from a Columbus, Ohio audience, for instance. Um, but that, that was kind of a general impression that I got. Um, and so in Europe, that you know, we would have somewhat different responses. But it would be also different in places where English was not a first language because they were, they're very wordy plays. Um, so, you know, we, we had done them in, uh, I think, in, in the Netherlands and in Czech Republic, um, in some cases using surtitles. Mm-hmm. So the way that the audience was receiving the information was, you know, a little like mediated mm-hmm. in some way. So obviously, you know, obviously they wouldn't be responding the same way, but still worked quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with, even across Canada, there would be some differences between East Coast and West Coast audiences, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, you know, in Montreal, be a little different than Toronto, uh, etc. Um, so, you know, you would find that. I mean, you what you want to look for is sort of patterns over, you know, over time. So just because you know the audience didn't laugh at something one night, I mean, that doesn't mean anything. But if you're noticing, like, oh, we used to always get laughs, now we're never getting laughs. You might want to investigate, like, oh, what 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 have we lost there, right? Um, and not that laughs are, are everything, but it's it it's usually a signifier that something's landed, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, and you want to make sure that things land, whether there's a laugh or not, that mm-hmm. that people are like, oh yeah, like they they received that. So you know, the audience audience responses can tell you that, but it's sort of you, you don't want to also overreact and go like just from night to night because then you're you're just going to lose track of what you're doing because you keep changing it and um, you got to stick to your guns and then if you notice something is kind of consistently like not landing then you then you got to look at that and see how, how how you can make it work again that's great okay so let's talk about some shows mm-hmm. uh because there's a bunch on here that were just uh i don't know important shows that happened in toronto like steel kiss mm-hmm. sarah stanley up uh, for between platform nine platform nine and buddies and bad times that was a remount yeah uh but Still, important show. Mm-hmm. Uh, thoughts on that? 
Um, yes. Well, I did not work rapid fire here. So yeah, steel kiss, the original steel kiss I was not involved in. Yeah. And that was like quite a while ago, uh, platform nine produced. And then Robin Fulford, the playwright wrote a sequel to it called Gulag, which we did at Passamurai Backspace and Sarah Stanley directed that. So I worked on that and I got to do, and, and she was very, she was wanting a very muscular, uh, kind of industrial sound design. So she picked the right person for that. And so, um, you know, we did that. And then, and then, uh, it was, I think while she was AD at Buddies, um, where she decided to like put the two together and do Steel Kiss and Gulag as a kind of, you know, um, single production. Uh, it was alternating nights, but, um, you know, with the same cast and same design team. So I got to kind of, uh, revamp my Gulag design and then also come up with something for Steel Kiss. Um, and I didn't, I hadn't even seen the original production. So it was kind of all new on, on that. And I collaborated with Steve Marsh on that, uh, mostly because um, it was a big job, and I was I was going to be on tour for part of it, for part of the tech. So I really needed somebody to to be there. Um, so between the two of us, we kind of there was a lot of source music involved, a lot of like heavy metal or in the Gulag stuff. It's more '90s kind of Soundgarden, Pearl Jam kind of stuff, uh, plus some you know original underscoring and a lot of sort of environmental soundscapes and stuff like that. I had a lot of prison sounds sure. and backgrounds and stuff. So, yeah, it, it, um, it, you know, I think it turned out pretty well. It's sort of like, that's going back a little while, so I don't remember it in vivid detail, mm-hmm. but um, I know that, you know, I think Sarah was pretty pleased with how it all turned out. Mm-hmm. That's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Possible Worlds, that was a hit. Uh-huh, yes. And it got remounted several times after that, didn't it? Well, it got the... It's been produced by different entities. Oh, yeah. uh, the, I still think that that production that Daniel Brooks directed is probably still the de- definitive production. I, I did not see uh, Mitchell Cushman did it more recently and um, would have liked to have seen it, but it wasn't in town really. So, um, And I'm sure you know, he probably did some you know, a, a different uh, spin, but a good job as well. But the Brooks production was quite cool and it was one of the first kind of notable uh designs that i did that was really kind of well focused and um you know it was i was using water sounds throughout so it was really you know there was there were little snippets of of bach and and stuff that were just you know i'd take like one little three second phrase from a bach piece and then loop like hold a note or something like that and then a lot of it was playing with you know waves um you know there was i had like five different kind of seaside waves uh, tracks, as well as dripping. Um, so, you know, I I was always very proud of it because it was a really, like, I think my designs up, to, up until then had been very kind of wide-ranging and eclectic, which is kind of cool as well. But this was, this was one where it was really focused and kind of had a real thematic uh, unity. So, um, you know, that, that it was notable for that. Nice. Uh, was Good Morning Desmond Demona? Good morning, sorry, Good Night Desmond Demona. Good morning, mm-hmm. Juliet. Was that a remount in two thousand and one? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was, was done. We did that at the Bluma. Yeah. Um, Elisa Palmer directed, yeah. um, and that was the that was one of the first times I used SFX, which was the, right. the precursor to QLab, and mm-hmm. um, but a, a much inferior kind of thing. Uh, but it was one of the first kind of um, computer playback uh, programs out there. 
Um, so I, it was quite a challenge. <laughs> it was all new territory, and it was yeah. it was like not an easy. It was quite an ordeal, actually. Uh, and working with a union in a union house mm-hmm. in one of the, in a big union house yeah. with like serious yeah union. <laughs> yeah. So I was no longer. It was definitely had no longer in the world of the free for all um, theater creators. You know, unregimented. It was now very regimented. You know, I was very constrained in what I was allowed to do. And, you know, we had to work within set time frames and uh, I had to communicate, you know, everything to the technician because I didn't know how to program it yet. And even if I did, it was not, you know, I wasn't able to like now, now I can pre-program stuff in QLab because I can use it on my own computer and I can just bring it in. But back then it was like, no, I had to bring in like paperwork and you know, discs with files on them and have the guy like laboriously like put it all in there and I'd be kind of guessing like, okay, let's try a five second fade. Okay, no, let's try eight, you know. And so it took a lot of tech time, uh, which is precious, of course, in that situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Moving on. Okay, let's talk talk about Soul Pepper. So you were there pretty much from the beginning. They had done a couple Mm -hmm. years before uh, before Endgame. Mm Mm-hmm. Which you worked with Daniel on, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, but since then, you've been working with them a lot. Yeah. Pr- like, I think pretty much every year, uh, there's been at least one and average of maybe three, say, per year that, that I've worked on with them and with a lot of different directors. And, um, um, you know, because Daniel did, he, he directed a few things for them back then. And then Laszlo, I... I got involved also at the same time because he did his uh platonov workshop mm-hmm. and then you know ever since then he's he's he'd always asked for me mm-hmm. so i i did at least i probably about 10 shows with with laszlo and that was laszlo marton right? yeah yeah well that's great and how has your experience been i mean obviously it's they've been asking you back every year but yeah. you, you've eventually became uh a creator of of uh cage yes yeah uh, now i talked to lorenzo mm-hmm. Savoini back in May, and that'll have come, that'll have come out uh, um, before this uh, interview. Mm-hmm. But tell me about your experience with that and how you created it, and tell me about the production and how you approached it. and And it sounds like you're getting back to your roots. Yes, right? it was very much kind of um, a return to you know those kind of early days of um, you know uh, uh, it was Diego's. Uh, brainchild Diego Matamoros is a founding member of Soul Soul Pepper and you know primarily an, an actor um, but you know he was really interested in um, two things you know one of them being John Cage and and his work and the other thing just being what you know in in doing a kind of happening or installation piece where it was not a conventional piece of theater and that had to do with just being in a room um audience and performers and and having a cage as a kind of you know um sort of device that could serve a number of different purposes and so um you know he wanted to work on it with me and uh and lorenzo and he wanted to to make it really like let's just be a team the three of us are the co-creators we're all equally responsible and we're all you know we're not going to be regimented into specific roles obviously you know lorenzo and i were going to look after a lot of the design of things but of course you know diego has full say on all that kind of stuff as well and and lorenzo and i are performers in it you know uh, diego's kind of like the 
you know, the main performer, but we're, we're there in the room, we're, we're operating our stuff, but we're also doing things, we're present, we're interacting with him, with the audience. Um, so it's really, uh, you know, it's really kind of a neat piece in that way. And, um, you know, I think it has a lot of potential. We did a, a two week workshop where, you know, uh, on day one, we just, we came in just with, you know, kind of toy boxes full of stuff but no real set plan on how we were going to do it we knew a few things that we were interested in one was um uh in using chance um like uh chance as a method to to arrive at things so i i brought in some like D &D dice like some 10 sided dice uh so that we could roll and we would have little charts meaning so that you know if if one of us rolled an eight that would lead us to something Um, and then, uh, you know, and Lorenzo had built this, uh, cage, this sort of plexiglass cube. Um, so we knew, we knew we wanted that. And, um, Diego wanted some kind of way to be, to turn into an ape. Um, so, you know, we built this, uh, sort of big mask, um, but it's not, not a furry mask. Uh, um, but it, you know, it's, it, it was, it's a mask, right? Um, and um, and so we just we just had these basic ingredients, and I brought in all my toys, mm-hmm. thinking like, well, this is the perfect opportunity. So I brought in my theremin, mm-hmm. I brought in my modular synth, mm-hmm. um, I brought in a bunch of noisemakers mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and we also rounded up a bunch of props that made interesting sounds. I borrowed some radios so we could do kind of a tribute to John Cage's radio piece, where we're like tuning radios to different things at the same time. Um, <clears throat> You know, so we had, we kind of had all these tricks out there and it just became this kind of playground. And I think it's, that's always going to be a, a part of it. We'll start to get more refined and, and defining the nature of it. But I think that that's always going to be there. And we're always going to try and keep some element of chance, uh, chance um, as, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, we'll have scenes that are now kind of scripted, but they were originally arrived at by a, a chance method, you know, and, and, and then, then, then they become part of the script, but there's still some loose play. Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, even, even in the final show, we'll probably have certain moments that we really will be, a, we're going to roll the dice mm-hmm. and just let that tell us what to do, you know, a little bit. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was a very productive two weeks mm-hmm. we had, and we're going to work a little more this fall. And then, uh, produce it in the spring, and then we're taking it to New York uh, next summer, um, and and beyond. Who knows where it goes from there? Uh, is it part of a festival in New York, or is it just a, an independent production? Well, it's part of a, a, an initial outreach that Soul Pepper has sort of struck up a partnership with uh, a theater in New York, and um, so that they're going to bring about four or five finished. Uh, productions to run in rep there for a month next July and cage will be one of them but it'll be a, a bit of a challenge because it doesn't really rep <laughs> well it just actually it's like it's a flat room there's no seating risers so it's kind of I it might just live in its own space probably um, although it could rep with the, maybe something like crash of that I don't know if they're bringing that but but it's you know it's that kind of thing it could potentially exist in the same uh, venue with well, that sounds very exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've gotten a bit of a flavor of how, you, how you've approached um, composition mm-hmm. and design in the past. 
um, first of all, do you consider yourself a composer? Yes. Or so so designer is kind of goes with that, but com- mm-hmm. a composer is a much more specific thing, right? How do you think there's a difference? Well, I you know to me it's I do my thing, and I prefer to think of myself as a composer. Mm-hmm. And when I do a sound design, that's part of my composing. Right. Okay. Um, now in some situations, notably Stratford, those are actually highly regimentedly different contracted positions, right? So I, when I was engaged as a sound designer at Stratford, I was not allowed to compose anything, um, literally. So, you know, it's kind of was like, oh, that's a very different thing because usually it's sort of like, they're both kind of blurred together. Is, is this a union thing? Is it because the musicians' union isn't there, or is it just um, the way they write the contracts? That's that's just how they contract it, right? right? So if you, um, if you, if I was contracted as a composer, first of all, I think it pays more, um, and then I get to kind of do a little more, um, and they're looking for original material in that regard. Um, whereas a sound design is like no you can't compose because you're not on a composing contract. So you can only use existing material and you're kind of a little more, you know, I don't even, I mean, I I probably won't go back there because there's a lot of restrictions about what I'm allowed to do in the rehearsal process, blah, blah, blah. Some of that is to do with IATSE, but some of it is just kind of like how they, how the institution operates. Um, And, uh, but that's a, that's an unusual set up though because in most cases um i usually have to like specifically fight for well not fight for but just remind them to include a composing or music credit mm-hmm. uh in a program but i'm i don't necessarily i'm not looking for separate fees for those things because i i don't even i don't want to have to think about how to divide them up right i would prefer that it's all kind of like oh i can you know uh i, I i'm gonna have some rain sounds here and here I'm going to have a musical theme Mm -hmm. and then sometimes they're going to blend together. Mm -hmm. So every, it's all part of the same thing. And even when I was doing, you know, before I started in theater and I was doing my own music recordings, I used a lot of concrete sounds. Mm -hmm. So I was always sound designing in my compositions. Mm -hmm. And when I do sound design, I'm approaching it as a composer. Mm -hmm. So they're really, to me, it's all one and the same thing. It's just that, usually you're contracted as a as a sound designer and then they're you know they're usually like only too happy if you're going to do original music as well right. they just you know they don't necessarily pay you any extra uh, they should really but it's like it's hard enough these days just getting a decent fee as a designer period right. so um which we'll talk about in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but so, but you've done a plenty of work at Shaw as well. Did I've done a couple it was things. A different experience there. Yeah, I didn't like it. No, same kind, same kind of thing. Same kind of thing, and even less like I didn't get a lot of moral support there. Um, okay. I mean, I you know, uh, I worked with Peter Hinton, who's a great director, mm-hmm. and he, you know, he was very supportive of what you know, I was trying to do. But it was just like. Um, the production department was not so supportive. It was, it was, I I just felt like I was just a a pain in the ass to them. And once again, the same kind of like, I wasn't, you know, like one year they did, they did actually, um, uh, get a QLab computer for me and, um, you know, let me put a couple speakers in the room and, and the stage manager could run 
run the you know the cues on the computer when I on the days that I wasn't there because of course you know I had to go back and forth productions in Toronto as well so I wasn't there in every rehearsal but I was able to build up you know I was able to build up the design over time uh, the same way that I would now and then the next time I went back they were like oh. Uh, we let you get away with too much, you know, last time, Richard. So, you know, no, you don't get a computer this time. No, you're not going to get speakers. And, and I was like, okay, this is really not acceptable. And, um, you know, and I, I just couldn't, you know, they didn't even see the value in it at all, it seemed. Um, and so I was like, you know, and I, you know, I just had some very frustrating experiences there, not with, you know, the company, like the, the cast uh, and the fellow designers and the director, you know, they were all great. They, they, they loved it, but, um, you know, I needed the, uh, I needed production to support it as well. And they, and they just were not really supportive and, and, uh, I won't, I will, I will not go back to Shaw. Yeah. It is a real machine. I think that, uh, one of the, I had a discussion with one of the, um, design associates, no design coordinators at mm-hmm. uh, Stratford. Um, and, she, as a design coordinator, I mean, it is a giant machine, mm-hmm. right? And unlike assistants, unlike assistants elsewhere, where you're, where you're uh, drafting and you're, uh, you're, I mean, you're a real assistant. There, it's you're kind of like an usher, <laughs> right? Uh, right? Like yeah. now we go now. The next step is this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't know where this is, I will find out. As a as a set assistant, uh, it's very much. Um, what do you want to do? Okay, let me translate that for you for the right. rest of the like yeah. machine to make sure that it can happen, yeah. right? So you have to have that kind of liaison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, with all the moving parts, it's hard to think how that over time, it's, it's easy, to, easy to see how over time that kind of builds up. Mm-hmm. But I can understand how it'd be extremely frustrating if you're expecting to, I don't know, be a bit more fluid or a yeah. bit more, you know, like part of the process. Because yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's almost there. I mean, I, you know, uh, because m- the way that I work really, uh, a lot of it happens during the rehearsal process and I need to be able to kind of build up the design then. So that's kind of um, a deal breaker for me if I, if I can't do that mm-hmm. in, a, in a situation like that. Because the other aspects of it, you know, once I was in the theater, you know, it was, it was actually quite fine. And, um, they always had, you know, the technicians themselves were great. Um, and, uh, I remember, um, being at the Avon and the guy, uh, you know, Mike Walsh, would be like, um, here, just go, uh, you know, using the, the, it was like the module, sort of the remote modules for the, um, uh, it's a system that I don't really like there, but, um, they still use it. Um, uh, sort of almost blanked it from my memory because it's like it's a um lcr what is it called again anyway so i was you know i was i was allowed to kind of manipulate the stuff in the theater which is unusual because usually you're not supposed to touch that if you're a designer whereas in the rehearsal halls i you know it was like oh um you know we're allowed to play up to five cues on a little portable cd player per rehearsal right so that's, that's, yeah, that was those were the kind of restrictions. That's a very strange yeah. rule. It might be yeah. a stage management thing. I don't know. That's very odd. I guess because they're, they're 
Well, it's because you need a tech there to run it for yeah, you, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and it was similar. It, it was a similar thing at Shaw. It was right. like, what you know, what could we do that wouldn't require um, a, an IATSE technician? Right. And to me, you know, and I, I found this was all kind of, you know, BS because like, no, this is the rehearsal hall. We don't need IATSE technicians, right? There is no such position as, as rehearsal hall technician, right? So I, I just thought it was all bogus, but, but because that in the agreement between the festival and, and IA was like, they, they were in charge of the the rehearsal spaces. So if we right. had been rehearsing off site, I could have done whatever I wanted. But because right. I was in their the IA controlled rehearsal halls, we were restricted. And so it was kind of like, you know, well, I could run my own Q Lab um, on my own computer, but only if I use like little tiny, you know, computer speakers, right. which weren't very helpful for yeah. a big rehearsal room, yeah. right? As soon as there were like actual speakers involved, even if I brought my own, right, I would need to have the IA person there to supervise, right? And nobody wanted to pay for that. So it was just kind of like, really, you know, I can't just do these very simple things that I've been, this has just been part of my workflow for the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I was like, you know what, this is, you know, I can't help you guys. Right, right. <laughs> this is, you know, maybe other people will, will can do this and I don't know how they do, but it, you know, I don't even know how to design or, or do anything if I can't, you know, do it in the rehearsal. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's understandable. Uh, I don't want to beat that. I think we've beaten it at right, right, yeah. enough. So I, I totally yeah. understand. So, um, uh, Moving on, just to I just want to talk about touch on your workflow, and then we'll get into sort of the mechanics of, of design, mm-hmm. you know, in the twenty first century. Um, how do you approach a script? Is there anything special you do to prepare? How do you um, do? You have a collection of material you go to uh, that, that's your favorite stuff, or it, it, is it wide open every time you you approach a script? Um, uh, how do you prepare to to put things together? Um, it's usually very intuitive and I, I've always looked at each production is, is a completely new blank page, new set of rules, you know, whatever's gone before doesn't necessarily, like I can tap into all, all my experience and knowledge, but I'm not going to say like, well, it has to be like this. And I usually will read a script and I'll have a few thoughts um, and then sometimes some scripts will have sort of some specific indications of sounds or music. Um, some of them, some of them can be a little too specific, sure. but but sometimes it's kind of helpful to have you know it's some guidelines. And sometimes it's actually part of the narrative, so you kind of have to, even if you don't do exactly what the script says, you still need to kind of embody it in some way because it's actually part of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'll talk to the director and see what kind of ideas they have. They'll usually have had a few thoughts. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, but I don't want to, I, I tend not to get too, um, you know, locked in up front about what it's going to be. Because, you know, it's it's not until you start to throw things into rehearsal that you can really tell what's going to work and what, what isn't. Mm-hmm. So I, I usually will make a few kind of uh, examples. Um, cues to bring in early in the process you know sometimes it's like an overture some kind of like how you know how are we going to start the show 
and sometimes that can be maybe it requires a bit of thematic music mm-hmm. and that often will lead if i bring that in and the director likes it and it seems like it's going to work then that that provides kind of the basis for all the rest of it mm-hmm. um and then by trial and error uh you know I'll I'll bring things in that I've kind of think oh maybe this might work this might work but I really don't know mm-hmm. so I don't want to like plot out the whole design too early because you know it could all be like based on something that ends up not working right. so I kind of have like I'll come in with a grab bag of like throw it in see what sticks mm-hmm. and then once once you start to see what works and what doesn't then you then you can kind of like you know the the pace picks up and you mm-hmm. can start to kind of build the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really how I've always worked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, occasionally there are there are pieces that just don't need much, so you're going to be very specific. And you know, um, you know, I did a production of Oleana that uh, Laszlo Martin directed, mm-hmm. and he he was like, "You don't don't worry about coming into rehearsal. Like we just you know, I, I really need a good kind of maybe one piece of music that we just use different edits of to you know." intro and outro the two acts and then we need the phone to ring (laughs) and so i just looked after that and i was you know i i was fine with that because i was like this kind of piece like you really you can't get in the way of stuff like you can't you can't treat it expressively unless you know it's just not going to work for that kind of piece right uh, whereas other pieces really need it. They they need a lot of support for, you know, like White Biting Dog. I had to kind of do a whole kind of like, you know, David Lynchian kind of right. skate for it because it's not realism. And yeah. it's like if you ever let it get to be tipping into too much realism, it's not, it's just going to like fall flat. So you kind of have to keep the, the mystique alive mm-hmm. for something like that. Um, so, and then, you know, everything in between. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, each piece... Uh, I won't really know what the design is going to be until we're kind of halfway through rehearsals. And even then it's just taking shape. Um, How do you collaborate with other designers? Do you uh, take um, inspiration from set and I mean, lighting is kind of, well, lighting, it does. You got to wait till the end to see what's going to happen, but set and costume. Yeah. Well, set and costume, especially like, you know, because it just sort of, gives you the first sort of glimmer of what the aesthetic of the production is going to be. And that can kind of lead, you know, uh, to, uh, you know, various things. So some of, some of the Julie Fox's designs kind of set this very austere look and whatever. And it was kind of like one thing that told me too, was that, Oh, sound is going to be very important because the set is kind of neutral. It's not going to tell you too much. Right. right? So actually like, you know, I can do a lot, um, and I'll need to do a lot because it'll need to fill in some of that storytelling. Uh, another one was, oh, well, this is this kind of not great production of Julius Caesar that I have the poster for here at, at Hart House. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, the set designer for that, well, the director wanted something that was very kind of like um, sort of post-industrial mm-hmm. kind of Sturm und Drang kind of mm-hmm. thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I can do that kind of sure, thing if, yeah. if you're going to do, you know, if that's going to be the aesthetic right. of the production. Right. And uh, the <clears throat> the set designer actually did come up with this whole kind of like rusted corrugated metal kind of thing. And so, you know, when I started to see that taking shape, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that's, you know, I, I can do all this kind of like very industrial kind of music 
for it because when you see that, it's going to sound like it belongs there, right? right? right. So I was kind of like, okay, good, good. They're they're actually building this for what I'm going to do, right? And then lighting usually takes you know takes their inspiration from what I'm doing and when what the yeah. set is is doing and yeah. stuff. So uh, frequently the um, lighting designers will have questions for me, and they'll come and see uh, a rehearsal run through where. Um, Sorry. Oh. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, the lighting designer will come and, and watch a run through, and they'll hear pretty, you know, ninety five percent of the, the the sound design already done at that point, and it'll give them some really good um, basis for you know at least the kind of the rhythm of of how the lights will will shift things from scene to scene and they will actually use the timings of the sound cues mm -hmm. as a basis for the timings of you know the cues yeah. that they make um so you know we there's a lot of there's a lot of interplay and i will sometimes like um you know i'll, I'll discuss things with the uh, with the other designers and sort of say like hmm you know i I think I'm going to slow down my fade because I like the way the light, the, it's, it seems too fast for the light, so I'm going to go with your timing. Or conversely, I might say, you know what, I think, I think you need to kind of get more on my timing. Yeah. Or, um, oh, hey, like, if you do a snap, I'm going to do something different just to kind of like, so we're not doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So there's usually a fair amount of communication there. Um, uh, and how about surprises? Like, do you have a, a deadline by which... You have like like props, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, we can only build. <laughs> right. We can only build something so fast. Yes. So we have to have a deadline, yeah. right? Unless it's something bought or found. Do you have a do you do you sort of hold those deadlines, or do you? Um, is it because of does it vary from the production to production and the and the workload? Um, yeah, each production is different. Yeah. I mean, some of them just you know some sometimes it's just me. I just like decide to do more, right. um, or sometimes it just needs more. Um, it's it's always a challenge if if suddenly like all new material is being asked of you because you know yeah that takes time as well um i've always been fairly agile at kind of being able to edit stuff on the fly or just whip something up but of course a more complex thing you know it's it's not something you can just do in a few minutes um that's why i try to get a lot of it done before we even load into the theater um, so that, you know, everyone's used to hearing it in, in the rehearsal hall. And by that point, it's kind of like, yeah, there'll still be changes and things will come up, but usually it's just like cuts or things get rearranged or modified, or you just need to re-edit something, you know, rarely are you suddenly going to need to come up with a whole new three minute composition or whatever. Although it, it, it can happen, but usually it's more like, oh, um, can we revamp this one? Um, so you, you're not working from scratch. You're just kind of, you're going to rethink an existing queue or whatever. Um, and, you know, I, I always have my computer with me even during tech. So I can, I can at least do, you know, if it's, if it's too elaborate, I'll have to, you know, I'll say, look, I'll have to do that at home and bring it in tomorrow, you know, but some things are just kind of like, oh, okay, like here, I'll, you know, I can just revise it here and send it send it up to the guy and and uh swap it in and it's easier to do that than than ever yeah uh and how about uh environmental sounds do you mm -hmm. record stuff uh at the so do you any kind of source recordings or do you source stuff a little from bit. effects libraries and stuff and how much of that stuff do you worry about or 
I have a lot of libraries, yeah. so, you know, I've got plenty of stuff. And sometimes I, you know, specific things I will record myself. Um, there's some stuff I just reuse because it just works, right? Um, and because I, I, I want stuff that's going to be very kind of steady. Um, so, you know, rain, you know, I'd like if I were to record a real rainstorm or whatever, it's too detailed, right? In a way, right? It's yeah. So I prefer to have like, have it kind of split up into layers. So I have like a rain track that is just steady rain, right? Got another track that's like windblown rain that give it a little kind of momentum. And then I've got the thunders are all separate spot cues that you can fly on on top of, of that. And then, you know, I've got like, you know, outdoor rain, indoor rain, you know, um, and I've got certain ones that I, that I keep coming back to because they've, they've, they've sort of proven effective. Um, and you know, sometimes authenticity is, is, is not helpful. (laughs) Um, oddly enough, it's, you know, it's similar in film, I guess, too. It's sort of like, you got to paint the cow to look like a horse or whatever <laughs> like yeah, it's more believable but yeah it's like sometimes um i get better results from kind of cobbling together some some pre-existing sounds and mixing them together and en- enhancing them mm-hmm. rather than trying to get like oh this is the real sound of a you know r- rat eating an acorn or something right mm-hmm. because the real sound on stage, when you play it on stage, it doesn't necessarily sound like what it's supposed to be. Right. So you're actually better off to do a kind of more cartoon version of it or something. Like, not not a silly one, but just kind of like making it more theatrical. Mm-hmm. It just is more believable, even though it's less authentic. Right. Because you are playing with people's expectations. Like, they expect something to yeah. sound like... For example, the, uh, the, the eagle sound is always mm-hmm. that red-tailed hawk. Right, yeah. Right, like it's a red-tailed hawk. We all know yeah. you ever heard like but yeah, but people are now associate yeah, right. with a real eagle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. just because it's it has a it has it, you know, it has a very um strong, sharp kind of recognized, you know, it's like it just works, right? It's just, you know, and you don't need to think, you know, it's not it's beside the point to think about the exact species sure. of of bird or whatever. It's just like, okay, that's a bird of prey. Right. It's like that signifies something. It's like the signifier that you want. Yeah. And you know, authenticity, you know, you can get kind of caught up and get to the wrong place with it. And one, one frequent example um, that's come up, and, and I'm, <laughs> I always, you know, try to explain this to directors and, and lighting designers, is, is that um, when you want thunder and lightning mm-hmm. on stage, um, you know, in, in real life, you know, you'll see a lightning flash and then a second or two later, you'll hear the thunder crack because right. it's like light travels faster than sound. Yeah. Um, and so depending on how far away it happened, you know, there'll be a delay. But if you do try and do that on stage, it doesn't work. It just seems like a mistake. Right. So, you know, we, I find it's more effective to just put them together. So right. with the, the, you know, you have your strobe and your thunder crack just mm-hmm. happen at the same time. And nobody worries about it, you know, because it actually works. It's like the opposite. If you actually try to make it more authentic, mm-hmm. it just seems wrong. It seems like a mistake. Like, whereas if you, if you just put them together, everyone just buys it and you don't think about it. Right. right? And it's actually, that's better because you don't want people to think about that. Right, <laughs> they exactly. just want to go like, Oh yeah, thunder and lightning. Right. <laughs> right yes. So yeah. Awesome. Okay. So let's just move into it. about 15 minutes. I want to cover a couple things. Um, First of all, 
Well, I'll leave the I'll leave the mayor fraud stuff to the right, end. Okay. We can we can we can cover that a little bit as right. as the outgoing thing. But let's talk about you have been uh, become a labor organizer <laughs> a little a little bit in the last right. little bit. Um, how much do you want to talk about? I mean, we don't have to use people like names or mm-hmm. companies. People will know when they're inside, like what what's going on. But what is the kind of um, plight that people are facing with the with the way people are paid in the in the mm. last you know five or ten years because things have changed. Mm. I mean, yeah, I, I left the business ten years ago, and it's right. not the same business that I was no, in. No, no, right. it's um yeah, it's very challenging uh, to work as a designer right now. Um, fees in in many situations have actually dropped considerably, mm-hmm. um, and you know not not across the board, mm-hmm. but there are certain certain companies that are you know, worse than others as far as like they're, you know, there's at least one um, established mid-sized theater company in Toronto that is paying designers at least $1,000 less than it paid us 15 years ago, right? right? So that's a huge Mm -hmm. drop. Um, And, you know, designers, uh, we, you know, we have ADC, Associated Designers of Canada, but it's, you know, it's, um, you know, it has a it has a troubled history of of ineffectiveness and you know I, I I tried to join years ago and they they weren't even accepting sound designers so it wasn't even an option um, you know now they do and now there's there's new management so they're trying to make it you know a more robust organization but you know they also uh, only about half the designers in Canada even belong to it so they don't have the kind of bargaining power that say. Uh, equity or IATSE or you know whatever um, other organizations where kind of everyone belongs Um, so you know they're trying to get more people on board they're trying to like get a better deal but um, you know it's it's been a bit it's kind of the wild west for for designers like we you know one of the reasons that I started this the designers guild uh, which is just right now it's just a Facebook group but we're trying to like make it a kind of a sort of not not a, a competitor to ADC, but a supplement, sort of like so that ADC is sort of like a certain kind of entity that is a bit slow moving and kind of how, but it's it's sort of going to do the big picture, doing the big agreements and stuff like that. But in between all that, you know, the Designers Guild is a place where designers can just share you know, information about what's going on with them and and ask for advice about problems and and kind of get our you know, we, I found that I didn't really know what was going on with, with fellow designers, you know, like, were they also, you know, seeing the same kind of pay cuts, like, what, you know, um, what, what are the situations, what kind of, you know, how have they been dealing with things? So this was, this was a way to just get us all like in, in one room talking and it didn't matter like whether you were a member of ADC or any other thing, it's, it's fine. It's like everyone who's basically working as a designer, um, can be a part of this and share the information and stuff. Um, so, you know, and, and, and people have been very, you know, responsive. Um, you know, I'm not really, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what we can really do with it. But one thing for sure is that we can at least share the information and be better informed and, and have be more clued in about what, what each other are doing. We, you know, it'll help us avoid undercutting each other and fees because that's kind of been happening inadvertently just because we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so uh, we're trying to we're putting together this fee database now. We're asking members to, um, you know, uh, it's anonymous, you know, uh, but but detailed so that we can track kind of at different that you know at specific venues with specific companies, uh, specific, you know, per house category you know, what is each discipline of design being paid typically so we can see what kind of range there is. And then, you know, we're going to try and go back a few more years, but right now it's just the past three years just so that we can get a sense of kind of where things are at right now. Because it's very hard. We, you know, you don't, as a, as a solo designer, you don't have a lot of bargaining power. Um, I, you know, I've been in the business long enough and I have kind of enough of a name that I can kind of set, you know, I have my own minimum fee that I can set, but it's not that it's, it's still pretty low. Right. And what I'm finding in the last few years that hasn't been a problem so much until recently is that, you know, companies are offering me less than even that. Mm -hmm. Like I have to like, you know, convince them to even bump up to just my minimum fee. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking about all the other designers kind of like that aren't, you know, that may not even have that or, or don't, you know, fight for it as much. And like, so they're getting paid even less. And this is, you know, this is terrible because every other discipline in the business, Mm -hmm. actors, stage managers, directors, their fees, you know, they've all gradually increased over time, right? They've, they've never, they've never been backtracked in any way. Whereas as designers, it's just kind of like, you know, it's crazy. Well, you're also, uh, you know, faced with the, this idea of there's no closed shop. Mm, yeah. So you can't, there's no, there's no unified labor movement, yeah. whether it's an equity and IA. And so you can't, there's no, there's no incentive to stick together mm-hmm. um, because there's no guarantee they're going to, people are going to stick with you. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like, um, it's. I can only imagine. It's so frustrating for people working full time. I, I can't. Like I can't. I, I left the business, and I'm. I'm happy with that decision. Mm-hmm. There's certain things I miss about it, mm-hmm. but um, uh, the, the there's a larger problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's obviously we should pay people what they're worth. Um, we should also treat people as professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the other themes that. Uh, has been coming up in this uh, in the podcast and Martha Mann's interview which will be coming out soon I think pinpoints I think one of the key elements and you started in mm-hmm. Little Theatre in Guelph mm-hmm. and the amateur theatre movement in Canada is still it's still very strong mm-hmm. right the amateur I mean oh, yeah. across the country there are little mm-hmm. theatres everywhere mm-hmm. and the little theatre movement is older than professional theater in Canada. I mean, besides the touring shows yeah, yeah. and that came, you know, through, but like the the rebirth of telling Canadian stories, not just touring UK and 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 US products. Um, it it's younger, and it came out of that tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think, unfortunately, there is a perception among the Canadian public, I mean, mm-hmm. the audience, that because of the strong amateur movement. It's something anyone can do. And if it's mm. something anyone can do, mm. or if it's treated like a hobby, right? then, first of all, aren't you doing what you love? Like, this is your passion, so mm. you should just love doing it, right. one. Mm. And two, if anyone can do it, then why should I pay you? Right. Like, 
the same as I pay an engineer where you have to have, you know, the ring and the training right. and everything else, yeah. even though that's what everyone <laughs> like, right. like the, tw- the 30 years you've spent in the Canadian theater business yeah. has been like extraordinarily that mm. you can't, you can't, you know, you can't buy that experience. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that uh, I feel like designers are paying for that. And mm-hmm. and then we have shrinking cultural budgets because mm-hmm. people don't value it as much and because the other two unions have staked out their claim. Yeah. Like, who's left? Yeah. It's going to be the designers. Yeah. The well, office staff maybe, but... No, but the office staff, they, they you know, the people that run theaters aren't going to cut office no. staff pay either because they got to work with those people no, exactly. like right next to them every day yeah. so designers are singled out to take the to take the hit and it's been brutal mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. and um you know what's happening is that um uh, you know i end up having to to double and triple book myself because the fees are too low to kind of dedicate enough time to each project so each the quality of the work suffers a little bit like i try to maintain it but i just i can't be there mm-hmm. to the same extent um because you know i've got to pay my rent mm-hmm. like everyone else mm-hmm. and um so i'm going to need to take on twice as much uh twice as many jobs if the fees are going to be that low right mm-hmm. um so you know it's it's unfortunate because then no no production kind of gets enough attention from the designers yeah. um uh, so I, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is. Um, one thing though, it, we're trying to encourage, uh, in, you know, in the designers guild is for us to kind of you know, stand up for, uh, you know, the respect of our profession and our expertise and the value of our work. Um, you know, which is, which is a, a product of many factors. There's the, you know, time as well as skill, as well as, you know, the scope of the production, um, and, you know, really making our case that actually, you know, it is specialized, not just anybody can do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel quite confident in saying that no one in Canada can do what I can do. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are other composer sound designers, mm-hmm. but they can't do exactly what I do, right. you know. Um, and, um, you know, that's got to count for something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you hire me, you know, uh, you know, you it'll be worth it. I will deliver you something, you know, that is, you know, won't be the same as what another designer might. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe sometimes you should pick that other designer if, depending on what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. But if you want the kind of thing that you know that I can deliver, Mm -hmm. then, you know, you're getting a good deal for it, really. Um, So, you know, just trying to like encourage people to kind of stand up for that and, and, stand up for the value of the work and try to, you know, like I know a lot of producers and companies are kind of between a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they've got less money to do the same kind of thing, but they, they, you know, we have to remind them not to take it out on designers, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, we still need to do it and it takes a lot of time and effort and, you know, um, we can't do it for, even the money that we're pay- being paid yeah. now, not, you know, much less, you know, any less than that. Yeah. Um, so to somehow like look for ways to kind of, you know, bring those fees back up or, you know, if you have to do, you know, cut back on how many productions you do a year or something. If you got, if you, if you don't have enough money to pay people to do what you're doing, mm-hmm. then you got to look at like 
maybe doing a bit less. Mm -hmm. So you can still pay people properly, but you just, you know, you're going to do one less production mm -hmm. per season, mm -hmm. you know, but do each one like properly with, you know, paying people properly. Yeah. Then you have to convince the funder that the operational grant they get is worth one production a year. Right. Right. And the Canadian funder, I mean, the Canada Council and the other funders, the arts councils in the various cities and the yeah. provinces, have to understand that what they're doing is, I mean, I feel in many ways, and mm. this is going to be a bit dark, but I feel mm. like we, there's, there, there's been a missed opportunity in Canadian yeah. theater, right? Like, things were going so well, mm -hmm. uh, and you really felt like people were starting, were starting to recognize that the arts has not just in and of itself important, though mm. it is, mm. but it's an economic driver and then it yeah. pays more than you put into it. Like that, there yeah. was the, several studies showed that quite obviously, mm. right? And, uh, and people, despite that, ignored it and then cut everything with austerity. Right. And then we had the recession and then the culture got cut yeah. because we don't need and that. And yet they kept the same rules about like, say, operating requirements. Right. Right. So yeah. they're still requiring these companies to do X number of productions right. per year, but they're, but you know, with only half the amount of money. So like, yeah, you know, that's, sense. that, yeah, that's, that's a systemic problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I just hope that we mm -hmm. can fix it because ultimately people are just going to leave the business. Yeah. And, I, you know what? I, I'll tell a quick story. I shared this on. Um, oh, you know what? I just talked about it on the other, on the other, on the Bellows thing that just came out mm -hmm. um, about this. Uh, if you go to the Bellows, uh, it's episode number thirty-two. Mm -hmm. uh, I spoke about uh, production that I saw at a at a company last week, and one of the uh, audiences, one of the members, one, one of the audience members at the end of Act One, sort of exclaimed. Um, like their their summation, their response to Act One, which had a great ending, mm -hmm. was, "Oh, how does he remember all those lines?" Right. And I just thought that's the bar. Right. That's the bar because they're mm -hmm. because of the amateur theater movement, mm -hmm. and because we don't, I don't know, the culture doesn't. Mm. Ex their expectation is so low. Right. Uh, that all we're doing is meeting it. Yeah. And. Uh, if there's one thing that amateur theater does not do well, mm. it's design. Right. Like, you you can have some terrific talent on stage. Mm -hmm. but there's lots of talented people to mm -hmm. sing and act and mm -hmm. play and and uh, lots of talented musicians and mm -hmm. uh, and directors and but but there's, there's not a lot of talented amateur designers. Out right. There, right. right. Well, because they also need a they also need the resource budget to work with. Yeah. Too, exactly. Right? Yeah. So even if they're set. willing to put the time in it's kind of like well yeah you know what what am i building yeah and it's a, it's not a skill that you can you can um it's not a skill you can acquire as a hobby mm -hmm. scenic art is mm. a, is just, is a is an extraordinary specialty that you can't just pick up right you have to go train you have to apprentice and you have to you know um anyways I hope that it gets better. Yeah. So where can people get in touch with you if they're working designers and want to be a part of this guild? Um, okay. Well, right now it exists only on Facebook, mm -hmm. but we're, we're going to try and expand beyond that. Um, basically, um, well, if if they have a friend who's a designer, mm -hmm. they're, they're probably in the guild. Right. Right. So just ask them. Okay. Because we've, we've got over 400 designers across Canada wow. already. Um, so probably like, you know, it, whatever city you're in, um, just ask some of the established designers there about it. And, and they're probably already, uh, members and they can put, you know, 
put you in touch. And then uh, basically it's me me and Michelle Ramsey are the administrators and, and we kind of approve um, the new members. But any, ex- any current members can kind of submit a, a new member um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll probably approve them. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you planning on having any kind of public forum about this? Like it seems like that's... Eventually, yes. Yeah, where we're headed, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think I'm trying to coordinate things with ADC, which I'm I'm not even a member of yet, but uh, I will probably join in the in the new year. Um, you know, just to sort of like, so we you know we can we can do things that they can't in some ways that they are that they are they have limitations, and we we are just kind of like an entity, a collective entity that can speak more freely. And so we, we might be able to do things like public campaigns or open letters or things to put pressure on, um, you know, where it needs to be applied, um, you know, to, to, to our benefit. Because I, I think part of the problem too is that uh, a lot of other people in the community aren't even aware, mm-hmm. right? Our fellow, you know, uh, actors, directors, etc aren't they don't even know kind of how bad things are for designers so you know we need to kind of like let them know about it but before we can even do that we need to kind of get our information together and just compare notes so that we know like what are we going to tell people right one of the problems that ADC had with um uh, I remember I went through the first minimum fees oh, yeah. uh, discussion yeah. back in the yeah. '90s. I was I was a brand new designer and I was mm. just sort of showing, going, showing up to the to the meetings to find out what was going on, and it was very contentious. Yeah, um, it still is. It's st- yeah, yeah, it still is, right? Yeah. And uh, and it, I mean, they eventually got minimum fees, but they eventually became treated as maximums by every by the company. Well, it's it's right? put downward pressure yeah. on the fees generally. Um, yeah. But they, but we're also sharing uh, the the thing that you're doing with sharing the database. Mm-hmm. ADC couldn't do because of the privacy laws because mm-hmm. nobody had opted into that before they sent all that data in. Yeah. But you guys have the advantage of saying, send us your data so it can be. Yeah. We can share it. Yeah. And I think you've got great response. Like there's a it's a big. Database yeah, we so we need far. we still need a lot more. Yeah. So any designers listening right now, please um, you know help us out and and fill in fill in your stuff. Send your bits. Yeah. All right, so we've already been talking for about an hour and forty-five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I think that we've talked a lot about your process, and mm-hmm. I feel like I don't want to get too in depth into, especially since we've been talking, we've been talking about all this kind of strife that designers right. are facing. Um, I, I don't know if if it's the right tone to move into training, but mm-hmm. you know, if somebody was going, first of all, do you think it's a good idea for someone to go into theater? As a designer, we haven't even talked about your film right. stuff. Right. Um, like, like, and you, I think you told me earlier that your answer today mm-hmm. is different than your answer ten years ago yeah. or fifteen years ago. And how and how does that differ? And would you would you make that? Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to discourage somebody, um, but I would I would I would be much more kind of um, you know sober about it, or just kind of like. Look, this is you know you're you're probably not going to be able to earn a living doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas maybe ten years ago, I would have said, "Oh yeah, you could if you know." And and that because now it's like it doesn't even matter how good you are. Mm-hmm. There's just not enough work, and the and the work that's there doesn't pay well enough. Mm-hmm. And so you know it's you know I I couldn't in any good conscience say to you know, and I still I I continually mentor you know young. Um, young designers, people like looking to, 
to learn. And yeah, I think it's very important to do that. But I'm, you know, I'm trying to level with them a lot more because like, you know, even if you're good, like, like I'm, you know, I've been at it for almost 25 years and I'm just scraping by still at this point. And I'm kind of one of considered one of the leading people in my field in the country. And, um, you know, so if I, if I'm like seeing my income shrink, uh, in recent years, like, you know, how can I, how can anyone expect someone just starting out? Um, you know, so one like I'm, always look trying to branch out a little bit more so i am doing the film stuff i'm looking to get into the sound design and music for games mm-hmm. uh which is a you know that's that's a growing industry um you know doing some pod i'm producing a podcast as well um and you know just looking for other avenues where i can use the same skills but you know beyond uh beyond uh, the, the theater realm mm-hmm. Um, because it's, it's more difficult than ever. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I'm still getting like enough work to get by, Mm -hmm. but it's actually like, I was doing better 10 years ago. It's like clearly, yeah. It's not the way something's supposed to go. I think it should be a clear message to Canada council. I don't know if they listen to this. Well, it's Uh, not only, that's, that's not the only thing. No, no, no. There's, there's systemic problems all over the place. Uh, you know. But there, you know, it, theater is not, it's not dying as fast as some, you know, people feared it. I mean, like, it's, I think it's partly, you know, we need to find some new things, right? And it's not about kind of, you know, um, appealing to young audiences by using, you know, mobile devices or, you know, that kind of, that's not, no, theater is still about live. What we, what we need to do is provide a live experience that has, that is actually so, singular you can't get it any other way and 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 it's going to be rewarding enough that people are going to go of all ages Mm -hmm. to check it out and that means we may have to kind of open our minds as to Mm -hmm. what we're doing and not just stick to the usual patterns right um now i don't have the answers for that but that's that's one you know it's partly us kind of like updating and and re rethinking and, and remodeling and stuff. And then, yeah, there's the, the arts councils. I think the new federal government is, you know, it's going to be a little more helpful in that regard, but it's still, that only goes so far. Mm-hmm. We need, there needs to be other, you know, Soul Pepper does quite well because they have a lot of private um, donors and a lot of corporate sponsors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you do need some of that. And even smaller companies, I, I mean, maybe, you know, there can be legislation that can make things um, work, kind of grease the wheels a little bit that way. So it becomes more attractive for, um, comp- you know, uh, business kind of sector to invest in performing arts. And it's kind of, there's something in it for them more um, so that that can happen more, you know, that would help as well. Because even, even if, you know, if we depend so much on just the arts councils, I mean, it's, it's, we're never going to, it's never going to work. There's never going to be enough anyway. Right. So like, that's only one, you know, one element. Uh, Yeah. You could probably double the budget of the current councils and you'd still be at a deficit. Yeah. Yeah. Though I'm not against that idea. No, well, it's, you know, (laughs) yeah, every, every, everything that can be done. Sure. Should should be done. But I mean, it's, you know, we're, non-commercial theater is a very, very difficult model because, um, 
even if you have a hugely successful show and you sell out every night, mm -hmm. you know, you're only looking at about a four week run. Mm -hmm. So you'll never actually make your money back. Right. right. Like it's just not, it's not possible. And like, you need to, the you know, commercial theater, which is not always successful by any means, but like when it is, it's because they're running the show for like a year, mm -hmm. right? So it's, they're able to amortize the, the initial costs mm -hmm. and start to make money back on it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, nonprofit theater, it's, it's actually impossible. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. You could have the best show that gets the best reviews that gets that, that, audiences love and you sell out every seat and every performance mm -hmm. and it still wouldn't actually pay for the the cost of making the show mm -hmm. right yeah. that's so the model itself is already a challenging right, right, right. uh uh i love to end on that point right but are you are you optimistic um i well i'm not pessimistic necessarily okay. um okay. i don't i think there's you know things need to change but um because i don't think it's things are sustainable the way things are right now but there have been some positive developments so you know we'll have to see um that's yeah. great okay well i'll take it i'll take it that's great well thank you so much for being on the show okay well thanks for thanks for having me that's true That was designer Richard Farron speaking to me from his home in September 2016. Next time, an interview with another Canadian designer, which I'll be recording in Shaw Stratford over the next month, so stay tuned. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theatre design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. Don't forget that if you like the show, support us on patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you contemplate editing on cassette tape. You have no idea how good you have it these days. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block. Try not to burp too much during okay. the it's good it's good it's good radio technique there. It'll be less gassy. Mm -hmm. It's important. <sighs> Unless you're doing conservative talk radio and right. you know, all the gas you want. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly.